from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zak. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, September 28th. Today, what we've learned about Trump's tax returns, the questions facing Judge Amy Coney Barrett, and what to expect at Tuesday's debate. One of the most important things I've learned covering Donald Trump over the last few years is just how different the U.S. government looks to rich people than it does to the rest of us. How easy it is to get out of or delay accountability for so many different things. If you have a good legal team and if you have a good team of accountants and you just try it and then say, hey, you know, come after me. And I think that that's the way that Trump has dealt with legal investigations his whole career, not dealing with the facts, but challenging the system, suing people who sue him, attacking those who, who investigate him. But the tax, the way he's used the tax code, this to me shows it's another sign in which Trump is sort of revealing the huge gap in our society and the enforcement of laws, um, depending on how much money you bring to the table. I'm Dave Farenthal. I'm a political reporter for The Washington Post. I cover the Trump Organization and the president's conflicts of interest. Over the weekend, the New York Times published the first in a series of stories about Donald Trump's tax return. So they got their hands on something that people have been asking about for the last five years. And they showed a couple of really notable things. One, that President Trump only paid $750 total in federal income taxes in 2016 and the same amount in 2017. And that for 10 of the 15 years before that, he didn't pay anything. Which is way less than I pay in taxes. Yes, it's way less than most Americans pay. And and the reason he didn't pay those federal income taxes or he paid so little is that his much ballyhooed business empire is doing terribly, that many of his Keystone properties lose tens of millions of dollars. And he's employed these sort of uh, rule bending or, you know, line stepping tax strategies that he's gotten his liability down to zero or close to it. Well, I want to ask more about those strategies. But first of all, just this question of like where these tax returns came from, because that's something that we have been asking for from the president for years now, from before he became president. And it seems like this is finally the last piece of the puzzle to understand exactly what his tax situation is. That's right. He not only did not release them voluntarily, as every president has done back since the 70s, he's fought both Congress and the Manhattan DA all the way to the Supreme Court to avoid giving these out. And so, yes, now we see what he's been trying to keep from us, um, which is, as you said, the most complete picture we've ever seen of his personal finances. So when it comes to the fact that President Trump has paid basically nothing in federal income taxes in recent years, is there a concern there that he has actually skirted some laws, that he has done something illegal here? Or is this just a product of how the tax code works for rich people? That's a question that's hard to answer at this point. I mean, certainly Donald Trump has lost a huge amount of money, according to the Times' reporting. Some of his biggest properties just lose money hand over fist. And the tax code is set up that if you lose a lot of money, it erases gains you may have from other properties and can take your tax liability down to zero. The harder question to answer would be, did he break the law in doing anything to lower his tax liability? And the Times cites a few examples where it appears Trump used a strategy that has been found to be illegal in some cases, one of them being 
being that he paid, quote unquote, consulting fees to members of his family, like Ivanka Trump, on Mm. big projects that they were doing, like the Trump Hotel in Vancouver, the Trump Hotel in Waikiki, and then wrote off those consulting expenses as business expenses for himself. So that was a way of transferring money to one of his children and also lowering his own taxes. In other instances, the Times says the IRS has gone after and sought civil penalties from firms that used bogus consulting setups where someone was paid for consulting even though they did none to avoid taxes. But you have to know a lot more about Trump's arrangement, the way the IRS views it, uh, before you can say anything about whether he broke the law or will face penalties in this case. And is the IRS looking into that, like asking these questions of what were the mechanisms that were used to make some of this money untaxable and whether or not they were used properly? The Times says that they have no indication that the IRS is investigating that particular arrangement. The one arrangement where they said there certainly has been a long and ongoing fight with the IRS was in 2010, Trump took a tax refund. He asked for a tax refund of $73 million, which is enormous. Basically, he asked for all the taxes he had paid from 2005 to 2008 to be given back to him because he said he'd lost so much money in the Great Recession that it not only wiped out his taxes for those years, but it was so big that he should be given back the taxes he'd already paid. The IRS, Mm -hmm. IRS paid that. Uh, in 2010, they paid him $73 million. And basically since then, they've been trying to figure out if they should have, if that was the right Mm. decision. And so there's an ongoing audit and ongoing fight that, according to the Times, has actually gone up to Congress. Congress is a committee that apparently considers any tax refund to an individual more than $2 million. And they've been considering whether Trump should have gotten these $73 million since 2011, uh, with no end in sight. How has President Trump responded to these revelations that came out over the weekend? Not with any substance. He called them fake news, uh, you know, said they're not true. In his business, the Trump Organization said sort of similar things. You know, there's full of inaccuracies. Mind you, this is like a huge amount of data about Trump's taxes and which Trump, if he wanted to and believed it was untrue, he could just release his taxes and show us that this was wrong. Well, so I think that when you look at some of these revelations, there is the angle of, wow, this is how much the president was paying in taxes, which is less than most Americans pay in taxes. But then there's also this question of, like, what is the state of the president's businesses that would allow for a situation where he is basically losing so much money that he doesn't have to pay any taxes? And, you know, we have had multiple conversations over the last few years about the state of the president's hotels um, and some of his business entities. That, that really are struggling. But it seems like this really puts a face to the fact that the president's business isn't doing well. No, you're right that we have seen snapshots of this over the last few years, problems at Trump's Doral Resorts, his resorts in Scotland, his DC hotel. Some of the biggest properties he has that he spent the most money on, has the biggest loans on, are in trouble. The Times story tells us even more than we knew already. It tells us that the, the losses for those properties have been in the tens or the hundreds of millions. What this shows us is that Donald Trump was great at playing a businessman on TV. Basically, his biggest financial success was as an actor uh, on The Apprentice, playing a sort of exaggerated version of himself on a reality TV show. Time says he made over $400 million on that. And then he, apparently not understanding who he was or what he was good at, took that money and invested it in business uh, deals and properties that have generally done very poorly. So that's why he's in financial trouble now. He started out with a great advantage in 2005 to because of The Apprentice and basically squandered it trying to be the person he played on TV. Hmm. And then I think it's worth asking the pretty basic question of, is President Trump actually rich right now? 
<laughs> that's one thing the time story doesn't tell us is how much cash is he sitting on? How much money does he have in the bank? Certainly, President Trump is facing a real financial crush, if not right now, then in the very near future. The properties that we've been talking about that have had the worst uh, financial luck over the last few years, like Doral, like Turnberry, like the Trump Hotel in D.C., those places have been slammed by the COVID-19 pandemic this year. A lot of them were closed for a long time. They've lost huge amounts of customers. Occupancy's down, and it's not going to come up for again for a long time. And in the next few years, Trump is facing huge loan payments on those properties. He's going to have to pay back hundreds of millions of dollars of loans, particularly on Doral and the DC hotel. And if he can't, he's personally guaranteed that money. It could be a problem for his personal finances. Hmm. We don't know what's going to happen in those years. Maybe he'll be president and Deutsche Bank, which owns a lot of that debt, will decide they don't want to collect on the president or bankrupt the president and they'll wait. I can't tell you what's going to happen to him or his businesses, but certainly he has a lot of unresolved problems and a lot of big bills that it doesn't seem like he has the ability to pay coming up in the next few years. And is any of that debt dependent on President Trump being president? The answer basically depends on what can Trump get Deutsche Bank to agree to. Even in the past, he's had a lot of luck getting lenders to realize that he's not going to pay their loans back and just giving him a discounted payoff. That happened with Trump Chicago. One of Trump's lenders there, this is long before he became president, just realized Trump wasn't going to pay back the loan and agreed to accept $48 million to pay off a $150 million plus loan. So Trump has had some luck in the past getting his lenders to basically agree to just eat a lot of unpaid loans. And, you know, there's no law that says that Deutsche Bank couldn't do that if Trump was still president, or even if he's not. There's, it's hard to say, you know, Trump will face this kind of unpaid bill because he could always get his lenders to agree to extend the deadline, lower it. You know, it's just dependent on what Trump and Deutsche Bank can agree to. And has there been any other president who left office potentially facing so much debt? There's never been a president like Trump. Certainly, we've had presidents who've left office and, you know, didn't have a lot of money. I think that Harry Truman is a good example. There's a presidential pension act because there had been presidents in the past who left office and, and, you know, needed a salary. But there's never been a president who faces this, you know, if Trump loses, he will face a constellation of both financial problems of the kinds we've described and also legal problems that no president has ever faced. Um, there's already an, an ongoing investigation into him, into his finances from the New York attorney general and a separate one from the Manhattan DA that are likely to continue if Trump loses and becomes a private citizen again. So we're talking about a huge number of pressures on him if he does lose and go back to running his business. And what else about this did you find notable or like illuminating to you? We've been writing this year about how much money the Trump organization has gotten paid by the U.S. government since Trump took office. Basically, how much money from us, from taxpayers, has Trump brought to his own business by going there repeatedly, bringing along aides, and then letting his company charge the government kind of whatever it wanted for those aides' rooms. And it's striking to me to see the imbalance there. So we now know Trump paid $750 total in federal income taxes in 2016 and 2017. So that's how much money he paid into the government. How much money has the government paid him? Well, we know of at least $1.1 million uh, worth of payments from the U.S. government to Trump's business since he took office. But the real number actually is likely to be higher. There's still a lot of data we're still trying to get. But I was just struck by how what an imbalance there was between what Trump paid the government and what the government paid him. So if the big takeaway from this is that the president's businesses are doing so poorly that he basically doesn't have to pay federal income tax or can pay $750, 
do you think that people will care about this? You know, I think that like we're we're basically at the end of his first term in office. And I think that people who thought that he was this amazing businessman going into the election last time have either been disabused of that idea or have refused to pay attention. And so I wonder whether or not this new news is actually going to change people's understanding of who Trump is. Well, I've long ago given up making predictions about how voters will react to news. But I think that there's things people should take away from this. I don't know if they will. But think about if you were hiring, if you were the CIA and you were hiring a spy or somebody came in the door and said, I want to be a spy. I want to know classified information. And they said, well, we're looking at your at your financial information and it shows you own a bunch of businesses that are losing money. And in the next few years, you're going to owe your lenders $420 million. You have a huge unresolved business problem in your private life. You know, you're going to need money in the next few years. Would we give classified information to somebody like that? Would we hire a person like that that was facing that kind of financial leverage and financial need? Probably not, because that's the kind of thing that gives outsiders leverage over you. If your business is in financial trouble, you know, how much influence could somebody have on you if they came in and said, look, I'm going to write you a check to make that trouble go away. David Farenthold reports on Trump's businesses for The Post. I stand before you today to fulfill one of my highest and most important duties under the United States Constitution, the nomination of a Supreme Court Justice. Thank you very much, Mr. President. I am deeply honored by the confidence that you have placed in me. Over the weekend, President Trump officially nominated Amy Coney Barrett, who's a judge on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, to serve on the Supreme Court and replace the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Emma Brown is an investigative reporter for The Post. And I have been reporting on Amy Coney Barrett. She has spent most of her career as a law professor and has been on the federal appellate court for the last three years. Our family includes me, my husband, Jesse, She's also a mom of seven kids. Emma, Vivian, Tess, Judd Peter, Liam, Juliet, and Benjamin. And a devout Catholic. And she is known as a conservative jurist in the mold of Antonin Scalia, who was her mentor. I clerked for Justice Scalia more than 20 years ago, but the lessons I learned still resonate. His judicial philosophy is mine too. A judge must apply the law as written. So you've been reporting on Amy Coney Barrett's relationship to her faith and how that might inform her possible performance as a justice. What are some parts of her faith that people are looking at more closely right now? Well, one part of it is how her Catholic faith shapes her ideas about some of the really hot-button social issues in our country today. She signed on to a letter, along with many other Catholic women, avowing that marriage is between one man and one woman, for example. She's also a member of a a lay-led charismatic Christian group called People of Praise, which was founded in South Bend, where she lives, and has about 2,000 members around the world. 
And she also had spoken for several years at a internship program for law students run by Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a Christian legal advocacy group that uses the courts to further its goals. So when it comes to this question of whether Barrett's faith might influence her jurisprudence, what actually does that mean? Well, she has been grappling with this question for years. So in 1998, so more than two decades ago now, early in her career, she co-authored a paper about how Catholic judges should deal with capital punishment cases. And she and her co-author concluded that Catholic judges were morally precluded from enforcing the death penalty and should recuse themselves before they would have to sign an execution order. Hmm. So she's been sort of grappling with what does that actually mean to be a Catholic judge in practice for many years. And this is also an issue that came up when she was first up for her current job, when she was being confirmed as an appellate court judge, and that there was a concern from Democratic senators that she was a person who could let her faith influence her judicial decisions. Today, we'll hear from two panels. It was really a big part of the questions she faced in 2017 when she was before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, Thank you, Chairman Grassley. Um, I'd like to thank Senator Young for that kind introduction. In the questioning of her about her faith, Senator Dianne Feinstein at one point said, And I think in in your case, uh, Professor, when you read your speeches... Um, the conclusion one draws is that the dogma lives loudly within you. A top Democrat under fire this morning for suggesting devout Catholics cannot also serve as federal judges. Conservatives really seized upon as evidence that Feinstein was, they argued, trying to impose a religious test. We have a very core constitutional principle that says there's no religious test for office, religious freedom. And so Barrett has faced these questions before, but it's not clear that Democrats really want to bring this up again because they really got stung with Feinstein's comment last time. Because it does seem like there is a very fine line when it comes to these concerns, that you have Democrats saying, we don't want a justice who is going to let their religion influence their judicial decisions. But at the same time, many justices are religious in their personal lives, and that there could be an appearance that Democrats are just dismissing any justice that happens to be religious and saying that it's impossible to have a judge who could rule fairly, even if they have a strong sense of faith. I think that's absolutely right. And it is tricky for them to ask about. It's frankly tricky to write about because, right, it's not wrong to be religious. And many judges are religious and do their jobs well. And Barrett has said, I will never impose my own personal convictions upon the law. At the same time, we're all products of our experience and our lives and our faiths and our beliefs. And so one thing I've been thinking about in the course of reporting on this is uh, Barrett is a strong originalist, which means, you know, she believes that laws should be interpreted in the way that their authors intended when they wrote them. And why does one judge become an originalist and another sees laws more expansively? That has to have something to do with all of your experiences, including your faith. And Mm. so the idea that faith is not part of judges' 
view is an oversimplification. So what are some aspects of Barrett's life and career that you've been looking at in trying to get a sense of whether or not her faith would or could inform or has informed her judicial decisions? My colleague John Swain and I took a close look at the Blackstone Legal Fellowship. Barrett spoke at the Blackstone Legal Fellowship five times between 2011 and 2016, which is a summer-long internship program for Christian law students run by the Alliance Defending Freedom. What is that organization? ADF is a Christian legal advocacy organization that was founded in the early 90s as kind of a counterweight to the American Civil Liberties Union. So ADF was founded by a person named Alan Sears, and he wrote a couple of books that appeared on the reading list for Blackstone Fellows during the years that Barrett spoke to the group. One of them is a book called The Homosexual Agenda. Hmm. And he and a co-author wrote, for example, that same-sex relationships lead to, quote, despair, disease, and early death. And the book is very clear about its opposition to same-sex marriage and other LGBTQ rights. And do we know if Barrett is on board with those views or agrees with those views? She said in 2017 when she was questioned about this group that she doesn't know all their policy positions, but she spoke there five times, and we thought it was interesting that she had decided to be part of a training program that is really explicitly about tying the practice of law to a Christian worldview. And so when people are looking at this facet of her professional experiences, there is this question of, well, if this is someone who is game to be a speaker at this fellowship that is has this express goal of trying to further a Christian worldview in the law, then does she or does she not sort of hold that as a personal goal? Exactly. And do we know what she was actually saying when she was talking to these groups? She was speaking about constitutional originalism. And so the topic of her lecture was not some of these really controversial social and cultural issues. So what do we know about Barrett's stance on issues like abortion or same-sex marriage from the types of rulings that she's made so far as a judge? Well, in only three years on the bench, it's really hard to say much about her jurisprudence. In most cases, she's decided as a judge, she has not written the actual decision, but she's joined more senior colleagues in opinions that they wrote. Hmm. In the most notable one, she joined in a dissent which said that the Supreme Court's decision in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which was sort of the the follow-up to Roe and reinforced the right of a woman to have an abortion, had not considered whether the reason for choosing to terminate a pregnancy might matter in her right. So what does that tell us or or what does that suggest? Well, I think that the clearest way to understand what people think she might do on Roe is to consider what Josh Hawley, Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri has said. He said he would not vote to confirm a justice who had not said that Roe was wrongly decided. And when he was asked about Barrett last week, he said she clearly meets that threshold. And I think many on the conservative side of the political spectrum believe that as well. And that's one reason why there was so much energy behind her in the lobbying of, of President Trump to pick her. And how much do we know about how Barrett thinks about 
legal precedent and how committed she is to upholding precedent, even if it's something that's in conflict with her beliefs. Well, she has said a justice faced with a precedent that she believes is unconstitutional should not feel she needs to uphold that precedent, that she should be faithful to the Constitution instead. So in 2017, she was asked whether she would be a no vote on Roe v. Wade. And she said that there's no chance for me to vote down Roe as an appellate judge. And that's true, of course. District court judges and appeals court judges have to apply Supreme Court precedent. That's the way it works. And in our country, the only people who can overturn a Supreme Court precedent are Supreme Court justices. So now that she will be, if she's confirmed and she would be a Supreme Court justice, she would be in just a fundamentally different position. Would you like to make a comment, Professor? Um, I agree with Justice Larson. Um, I'm being considered for a position on a court of appeals, and there would be no opportunity to be a no vote on Roe. And as I said to the committee, well, I would faithfully apply all Supreme Court precedent. Emma Brown is an investigative reporter for The Post. The Senate Judiciary Committee will begin four days of confirmation hearings for Judge Barrett on October 12th. And now, one more thing. President Trump and Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden will debate each other for the first time on Tuesday evening. It will be the first of three presidential debates. One little ritual that happens is you will watch the candidates walk out on stage. And then they will start furiously scribbling on the blank pieces of paper that are on the lecterns in front of them. I always wonder what they're writing down in that moment. I can tell you what they're writing down. What what it is, is the candidates are not allowed to bring any notes on stage. And so they are walking onto stage with their heads just full of the talking points and the, the, the things they want to say. So what they are doing is downloading their memories so that they will have all that in front of them. It reminds me of like taking a calculus test and just like looking at the formula 90 seconds before I go into the test and then like writing it down immediately because I know I'm going to forget it in like two seconds. Right. Karen Tumulty is a columnist covering national politics for The Post. I've been on the moderating panels for a number of uh, primary season presidential debates, a Democratic one in 2000. Mr. Vice President, twice tonight you've been asked questions about how justice is administered in this country. At a time when crime rates are falling, the prison population is swelling to the point where two million Americans are incarcerated. Two-thirds of federal inmates are either black or Hispanic. Is this something the Clinton administration anticipated when President Clinton signed tougher crime laws? And why is this happening? I think there are... A Republican won in 2012. So, Speaker Gingrich, it sounds like Congresswoman Bachman does not believe that Wall Street is to blame for the financial mess. You've said that the current protests on Wall Street are... In your words, the natural product of Obama's class warfare. Does this mean that these people who are out there protesting 
on Wall Street across the country have no grievance. And then in 2016, a primary season debate between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. Secretary Clinton, a Washington Post poll just yesterday found that only 37 percent of Americans consider you honest and trustworthy. Now, when you've been asked about this in the past, you have said that this is the result of many, many years of Republican attacks upon you. But Americans have also had 25 more than that years to get to know you for themselves. Is there anything in your own actions and the decisions that you yourself had made that would foster this kind of mistrust? So what exactly is the role of the moderator in terms of how you see it? You know, I really think that if the day after the debate, you are talking about the moderator, that means the moderator did not do a very good job. Hmm. The, the role of the moderator is to ask sharp questions that will, that viewers will find illuminating and that will get the candidates off of their, off their talking points. And how do you prepare for something like that? Like, how do you make sure that you have those sharp questions that are going to elicit the best responses, but aren't going to make you as the moderator the actual subject of debate? The very first thing you do is you sit down and you learn everything you can about what the candidates have said on every conceivable issue. And it becomes really clear when you start going over their stump speeches and their policy positions, that there will be places that they will want to go during the debate. In fact, during debate prep, they refer to this as home base. Hmm. And they will want to go back to their familiar talking points. So often, the best way to get them off the talking point is to stipulate the talking point in the question. You say, candidate X, I, I know that you have often argued position Y, but you know, how would you make that happen or whatever? And sometimes the most revealing questions, I think, are the shortest and the sharpest ones. Secretary Clinton, is Donald Trump a racist? You know, what you're describing in terms of thinking about how best to ask the question, but also anticipating how the question is going to be answered and then changing the question based on what you anticipate the answer will be. I mean, it seems like chess where you have to think like three or four moves ahead. Um, but but I think that's especially true of fact-checking, which is becoming more and more a part of debates right now, especially with President Trump, that there is an expectation that you're not just going to stand by as a moderator and let people say things that are not true on stage w- without pushing back against them. You know, and that is so difficult to do in the moment, especially when you have somebody like Donald Trump who who does not really think there's a penalty to be paid for for not telling the truth. So I think that as as I look at the position these moderators are going to be on, they cannot just keep calling him on every one of his statements. They are going to have to pick their shots and Quite frankly, Joe Biden is going to have to pick his as well. One of his, you know, patented, oh, come on, man, <laughs> rejoinders. So what are you expecting from the debate on Tuesday night and for the debates during this presidential campaign season? What are you expecting from a content level, but also from the fact that everything is going to be weird and different because of these strange times that we're in? 
Well, I think that um, Chris Wallace, who will be moderating the first one, is about as tough of a questioner as, as you find in television today. And he also has a very recent experience doing a pretty tough interview with, with Donald Trump in August. So he is going to go in there, I think, very well prepared for whatever direction the president takes this. But it, you know, Trump does not think there's any, as I said, any penalty to be paid for not telling the truth. He is likely to go into personal attacks. And both Chris Wallace and Joe Biden, are, I guarantee you, are have been wargaming what their responses are going to be on whatever direction Trump decides to go. And then just the fact that this is going to be such an unfamiliar situation where it is a debate that doesn't have an audience, that there's not kind of this like crowd feedback or interplay. And like, how do you think that that is going to play out? I think that is going to make a much better debate. I, in fact, had written a column months ago saying that the one thing that they really should do in these debates is get rid of the live audience because that gives the candidate too much of an incentive to play for an applause line as opposed to a direct answer to a question. People forget that the very famous Kennedy-Nixon debate took place in a television studio. And I I do think that, that that actually that actually makes the debates better and more useful to to the viewer. Karen Tumulty is a columnist covering national politics for The Post. Tuesday's debate will air at 9 p.m. You can watch live at WashingtonPost.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>